Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Critical Science Podcast. So uh, I've been off for a while and, uh, you know, not uh, putting these up as regularly as, as I should. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been busy. I, I want to thank uh, my friends at the Institute for the Advancement of Food and Nutrition Sciences for uh, inviting me out to their uh, summer meeting. We had a great time. I gave a great uh, talk. Uh, I think it was well received. Um, I especially want to thank uh, Dr. Wendelin Jones, the executive director at IFINS, for uh, inviting me out to, to give a talk on um, titanium dioxide and uh, food as part of a session on risk and hazard. And of course, if uh, you've listened to any of the previous episodes of the podcast, uh, I think it's the first episode, actually. Uh, you probably are familiar with my uh, my my uh, rant. Is that the right word for it? Maybe may I'll call it a rant. About uh, 4,080 Skittles per day, every day for nine years before you finally get to the genotoxic, the purported or the alleged dose that will cause uh, DNA damage, or as we call it, genotoxicity. Um, so I was out uh, in D.C. giving that talk at the, the National Press Club. And again, uh, you know, I want to thank uh, Dr. Jones for inviting me out there. That was a great time. Uh, I got to meet a lot of nice people and I got to uh, learn quite a bit. Uh, I don't often talk to nutrition uh, scientists. So it was it was a good time for me. And I, I uh, learned a lot about um, about packaging, especially there's a lot of things in functional packaging I didn't I didn't know. So that was good, uh, as well as uh, uh, food processing. Um, that's not something I normally think about, but it's, it's certainly something that comes up in discussion around the dinner table. Um, so that was that was interesting. I was able to share some of that back with my family as uh, as we eat, and the two kids are just utterly bored out of their minds as we're talking science, uh, my wife and I. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about today, uh, enough about that, enough about my trip to D.C. I want to talk about pesticides. And, um, you know, I'm calling this an office hours episode because a friend of mine actually uh, asked me some questions about pesticides. So on LinkedIn, I made a post about um, uh, the, the fear mongering that goes on with respect to food and pesticide residues on, on produce, you know, fruits and vegetables. And, um, you know, I, I was bringing up the point that uh, what really disappoints me is the fact that the Environmental Working Group, one of the merchants of fear, um, puts out a lot of scientific informa- uh, misinformation out there about pesticides. And uh, I, I read one of their more recent things about the Dirty Dozen, as they call it. It was released back in March. And as I was reading it after coming back from IFINS, um, one of the things that struck me was the real message. You can really boil down the message, in my opinion, from EWG, to you have two choices. You can either buy expensive luxury foods like organic and non-GMO, which is what EWG would prefer you to do, or two, your second choice, you poison your families. Eh, that's about it. Those are your two choices according to EWG, uh, based on my read. You can either buy expensive luxury foods or you can poison your families. Well, you know, I, I don't talk about this often, but I, I grew up in a very poor family. My parents uh, declared bankruptcy when I was... Um, growing up. And, you know, fruits and vegetables were a luxury for us anyway. And it got me thinking, now, wait wait a second, organic and non-GMO, those are hella expensive, like really super duper expensive foods. And if EWG is saying that those are your two choices, you can either buy expensive luxury foods like organic and non-GMO, or you can poison your families. 
Uh, that doesn't leave poor families with much room to buy produce. And that's kind of a problem. Now, this is scientific misinformation. The reason why it's misinformation is because the science is clear that our food supply is safe. The United States U.S. uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. EPA, they have scientists who review the science about pesticides and they set safe pesticide residue levels. Now, that's jargony, right? I, I shouldn't use that jargony term without defining it. So let me tell you what that means. So when you have a fruit or a vegetable, there is, a, there is an amount of, of residue, amount of pesticide that is allowed to be on that piece of produce. And again, we call that the, pes- the pesticide residue level. That residue level, the amount of that pesticide in the produce, so like in the meat, like if you're talking apple, that's probably the easiest example. You got an apple, you've got the peel and you got the flesh of the apple, right? We're talking, the residue isn't just what's on the peel. The residue also deals with the amount in the apple. So it's actually the amount that you would ingest of this pesticide if you were to eat this apple. The EPA sets a safe level for that. And guess what? The USDA goes out and they enforce it. All right. That's that's how our pesticide um, safety net works here. So the US EPA looks at the science. Now, where does the science come from? It could be from academics. Typically, though, it's not. Typically, it's from the companies. Now, before somebody says, oh, my God, those companies. Oh, my God. They, they are they're just cooking the books. No, they aren't cooking the books and they're not cooking the books for a few reasons. Number one reason why companies don't cook the books. It's against the law. For them to cook the books. There was this huge scandal in the 1970s. And it actually cha- fundamentally changed how regulatory toxicology is done today uh, compared to back in the se- 60s and 70s. There was a huge scandal where somebody was actually cooking the books legitimately, not like, you know, putting them in a fire and, and rotating them on a rotisserie. That'd be, that'd be kind of interesting. I don't think the lab books would work very well that way. But no, what they were doing was they, they were, they were falsifying the records. And so, um, as a result of that, the U S EPA and the U S food and drug administration, uh, FDA, they promulgated rules that are what we call the good laboratory procedure, uh, rules, GLP. If you ever hear me say GLP, that's what it means. And you can always tell me later that I should have explained it to you, but GLP is the good laboratory procedures. Now, that doesn't sound like, you know, this big, scary thing, but it is. It's a big, hairy, scary thing because there are auditors and there are audits. And among the many, 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 many things that you have to do under GLP, you have to calibrate everything and you have to follow very specific protocols. And these protocols are set by the regulatory agencies. So US EPA has a standard protocol for all the different toxicity tests that they can require and they do require if you're going to register a pesticide. And what's more is there's a bare minimum amount that you have to do under the pesticide program. And then if the EPA thinks, well, there's something going on here, we want you to study this more, they can order industry to do more tests. Now, these aren't just human health tests. We're also talking about ecological tests, environmental testing. So they are testing, how is this thing going to affect amphibians? How is it going to affect birds? How is this 
pesticide going to affect worms in the soil? How's it going to affect the bacteria in the soil? How's it going to affect endangered species under the Endangered Species Act? How's it going to impact all these different facets of the environment? And here's the thing. The U.S. taxpayer, generally speaking, does not pay for for this testing. This testing is paid for by industry. And EPA, if they don't think the test was run well, if they think there was something wrong with it, they can actually say, no, we're not accepting this. And not only that, but the EPA can say, you know what? We want you to do this study again. Or we want you to do these additional studies. Because we don't think there's enough information here for us to say definitively that this is safe below a certain level. Or mm, things are kind of a little difficult for us to see. We need additional information. So the EPA can require this information, and they oftentimes do require this additional information. Okay, so now you're saying, okay, Lyle, so what's, what's that second reason why, why companies aren't cooking the books? Well, it's simple. In the United States, if you're cooking the books and you're one of these major companies, you're going to get sued. And if you're cooking the books, rightfully so, you should be sued. That's, that's illegal, and you're harming people. That's, that's not okay, right? You're sending false information to the U.S. EPA. That's not okay. You know, in, in the case of drugs, you're sending false information to the U.S. FDA. That's not okay. And so if it's found out that you are cooking the books, well, you deserve to get sued, right? And in the United States, people are more than happy to sue companies. It happens all the time, right? So companies have a huge disincentive to cook the books and to do other shady things. So we got JLP, which is, you know, and all the audits that go with it, right? Ensuring that people are doing these studies correctly and according to the way that the agencies say need to be done. We also have this, in, you know, it's called tort. Tort is uh, any kind of injury uh, in, in the court system. So these tort lawsuits, uh, toxic tort is te- typically what they're called, uh, cases. You know, so companies have this huge disincentive to cook the books, you know, about, about these chemicals. So now you, you, have, to, you have to remember, and just, just a short little primer on the merchants of fear and specifically uh, the Environmental Working Group, they, they are a very pro-organic, pro-non-GMO organization. They do not like conventional agriculture uh, based on their writings. I, I think they actually come right out and say it uh, several different times. And that's cool. They, they, can, they can feel that way. But what they can't do is spread misinformation about pesticides. And EWG tends to use what's called, um, well, they tend to use a, a philosophy of, well, any level of pesticide is harmful. And we know that's just not true. Toxicologists know this is not true. There's a basic tenet of toxicology that has been around for hundreds of years Paracelsus was the first uh, that we have recorded to have said it, which is that more or less the dose makes the toxin. In other words, there is a threshold at which uh, you will not see toxicity, and there's a threshold above which you will see toxicity. With respect to these safe pesticide residue levels, these levels are levels where you can eat 
the pesticide over a period of 70 plus years and expect no adverse outcome from doing that. Now, in different episodes, I'll talk about more of this misinformation that gets spread by the merchants of fear and by some of their aligned uh, academic scientists. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on it today because I mostly want to talk about pesticide safety. So uh, as I was saying, my, my colleague or my friend, actually, uh, Michael, um, said, you know, it'd be really interesting. It'd be really helpful to hear, um, you know, a little bit more about these pesticides. Where are they on the fruits? Can they be washed off? Stuff like that. You know, that would be really helpful to, to hear, you know, and, and just, you know, how do they how do they figure out that these things are safe? And, you know, he, he asked a great question. So I want I want to focus in on, you know, where are these pesticides? At? I kind of alluded to it earlier. So when we're talking pesticides, most of us think of, you know, they are spraying the crops, you know, maybe with a crop duster or they got a person out with a tank. Um, you know, on their back, you know, so a backpack tank filled with pesticide and they're out and they're waving this wand and spraying the pesticides on the crops, right? Or maybe they have some piece of uh, farm machinery that goes out and uh, sprays the crops on a very industrial scale, right? So these are the kinds of things that we tend to have in our head. Well, there's other ways of getting pesticides into plants. Um, In the 90s, there was this uh, class of chemicals that uh, became very popular called the uh, neonicotinoids. And um, the neonicotinoids uh, have um, chemicals that look a lot like nicotine in them. Insects hate nicotine. It's a, it's a neurotoxin to them. And so uh, there's very few insects that can actually eat a tobacco plant. Uh, very few. Just like there's very few insects that can actually eat a tomato plant for very similar reasons. And, you know, the pesticide companies, uh, Bayer and BASF, uh, come to mind, uh, top of mind, uh, with the neonicotinoids, you know, they, they, they were um, very active in developing these different neonics. And uh, that's what we call them for short neonics. And one of the things that, um, you know, they did was they figured out, hey, you know what, you could do a systemic um, application of these things, which is really cool. So there's a couple, what systemic in this case means is that the entire plant is going to have uh, these neonicotinoids within it. So either you're going to puncture the trunk and you're going to uh, deliver this into the uh, plant's um, uh, circulatory system, for lack of a better word, or you're going to put it into the ground, do a ground soak, and then the roots will soak it up and then these neonicotinoids will will flow throughout the entire plant. Now, what happens is uh, you do get these neonicotinoids into the fruit, right? And so you will have some in the fruit and you'll have some in, you know, uh, going this way in the leaves and everything else. If you're, so if you're talking about like a fruit tree, let's say like an apple tree, right? You will have some of these neonicotinoids in the actual flesh of the apple. You'll probably also have some of it being, uh, you know, found within the, uh, the skin as well, because it's, it's, it's going throughout the entire plant. So the question then becomes, but is it safe? Is it safe to eat these fruits when, you know, there's this neonicotinoid that was, uh, you know, brought into the systemic circulation of the plant. Is that safe? And the answer is yes, it's safe. It is. They've done the studies and they've identified at what point we're likely to see toxicity 
And then they typically will divide that by several different numbers to get it down uh, by at least a factor of 10, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand. So it's going to be, so the, the residue levels are going to be even lower than that. And the other thing that happens is the amount of these neonicotinoids in the plant over time will decrease for various reasons. Some of it breaks down, some of it just gets diluted, right? So that's the other thing that happens. So that dose that you get from eating this apple is going to be exceedingly low. And the EPA has already established what safe levels are, and you're going to be well below those safe levels typically. And so here's, here's the thing you have to remember. So EPA is looking at the science and determining what safe levels are. And they look at people's eating habits as well. And, you know, one thing you could do if, you know, some people don't like the skin of the apple, some people do. If you don't like the skin of the apple and you want to decrease your exposure to pesticides, that's an easy way to do it, right? You just peel the, the apple and you take off all the stuff that's there. Now, with a systemic pesticide, like some of, you know, some of these neonics that they give systemically, washing is only going to get rid of what may be on the outside of the plant, which really, if it's a systemic application, won't be much. But there are other pesticide applications where we actually are spraying it on the outside of the plant, right? That's what a lot of us think about. And, you know, if, if I'm spraying, right now I'm spraying for uh, Japanese beetles, and it's it's June um, we won't be harvesting these apples until, you know, September, October, right? I know for a fact that the withholding period, um, again, more jargon. So a withholding period is the period of time in which I can't spray the plant because I'm about to harvest. So for my apples, uh, for this particular pesticide, my withholding period is about two weeks. And what that means is after about two weeks, the residue levels on the apple will be such that they are below um, what the EPA says is safe, right? So we, or is toxic, I should say. So they'll be exceedingly safe, right? That's, that's just what, what happens here. So I'll wait, uh, you know, once I know that I'll be picking these things, I won't spray again. And then I'll probably just be spraying with soap and water at that point. Um, but to be honest with you, it, it, even if they do eat most of the leaves, it wouldn't be that big a deal because of the time of year we're going to end up picking the apples. The leaves are going to be falling off anyway. So it's not a big deal for me. Um, I really don't feel much need to spray at that point. Anyway, so the, this is an external application. Washing under running water and kind of gently scrubbing it with your hands or with a towel is going to get a lot of pesticide residue off. Now, someone's going to say, oh, but my goodness, some of the pesticides are going to go into the flesh of the fruit. And that's true. But here's the thing. When EPA sets that residue level, they're setting it for the entire fruit that you're going to eat. They don't set it just for the outside of the fruit. This has already been taken into consideration. So, that, so again, if you're, if you're buying fruit, you're buying produce, you know, make sure you're washing it, right? Always wash your produce. Always, always, always. Um, the FDA and the USDA and the EPA, for that matter, all suggest that you just rinse with water, simply water. The commercial fruit rinses, produce rinses, whatever, FDA really says, you know, these really haven't been tested that well. Um, you should probably just avoid them because we're not even sure they work better than water anyway. So just just do water. It's cheaper. It's easier. Um and it's, 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 and it's effective, right? And so you will 
decrease it just, just from that alone. Now, one of the other questions I get a lot is, what about this whole organic thing? And I, I think I may have mentioned this previously on the podcast, but it's worth mentioning again. And I like saying this whenever I can. When we talk about organic, organic is typically, my wife likes to say, organic is really about what you can't use more than what you can use. Um, and so the way to think of organic is if it was synthetically made, probably you cannot use it. But if it was derived from a natural source, you probably can. So, you know, that just because it's natural, though, doesn't mean that it is safe or that it is safer than a pesticide that is made conventionally. There's nothing that says that just because a plant created it or because an animal created it, all of a sudden it's better for you than if it was created in a factory. Um, Bottom line is chemistry is chemistry. That's really it. The formaldehyde created in your body. Oh, wait, I forgot. A lot of people don't realize this. So fun fact, um, our body makes tons of formaldehyde. It's part of a single carbon metabolism. We're making formaldehyde all the time. And it's the same exact formaldehyde chemically that someone might use to preserve, you know, a human body for you know, a funeral, right? It's, it's, it's no different. It's chemically the same thing. There's nothing different between the formaldehyde in my body and the formaldehyde in a giant jug that I used to use in the lab for my experiments. It's, it's, it's absolutely no different whatsoever. All right. Snake venom coming from a snake is the same as any snake venom I might produce in the lab. It's same thing. There really is no difference, right? And this, this is what we have to remember. So if you're making a pyrethroid in a plant and then I make one in, in a laboratory just because I made it in the laboratory doesn't mean that yours is safer, right? Because at the end of the day, chemistry is chemistry. So this whole thing about, well, organic is safer because it's natural. I could list a billion things that are quote unquote organic that are completely harmful for you. Snake venom comes to mind. Uh, Bee venom comes to mind. Water comes to mind. Oh, yeah. So the number one killer, I say this all the time. You guys are probably tired of hearing this. The number one killer of children in Florida. Say it with me, everybody. Water. That's a fun fact. People love it. Um, I, was at, I was at a meeting recently, and I asked uh, the audience, you know, what's the number one killer of children? Come on, people. Uh, give it to me. And I had, uh, I heard guns. I heard uh, alligators. I really liked alligators. Sharks. Um, but no, the number one killer of children in Florida is still, to this day, water. Um, another fun fact for you. This was, this was interesting. A colleague of mine in Germany shared this with me. Uh, it makes sense after I thought about it. He's like, um, you know, uh, name an animal that kills more people than uh, sharks. And I'm thinking, well, I know sharks don't actually kill that many people. Uh but I'm not sure where he's going. So I don't know. Uh, tell, tell me which one you're thinking of. And he says, cattle. Cattle kill more humans every year than sharks by a long shot. So there you go. Um, that's, that's a pretty fun fact, too. Anyway, so that's the whole thing about organic. Is organic safer? No, organic isn't safer. 
organic tends to be more expensive for various reasons, including all the certifications you have to go through, um, all the things you cannot do with your soil, all, you know, all the, the practices that you have to do that rack up all these costs, as well as all the auditing racks up all these additional costs. Uh, so organic isn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily safer. It's also just more expensive. And, you know, part of this could be, you know, there, there could be just a, uh, due to supply and demand, maybe there's a premium for organic. I don't know. I don't, I don't study that, but that's always kind of how it's felt when I've been looking at prices of organic things. Then you got this whole GMO, non-GMO thing. Um, again, genetically modified organisms. Um, here's what's funny. We've been genetically modifying organisms for hundreds of years. Um, and, you know, every time we do any kind of breeding, you know, we've been doing plant breeding. We've been doing animal breeding in, in agriculture for tons of years, hundreds of years. We've been doing this, right? We've been doing it in dogs to the point where you have all these different breeds of dogs, and that's all through genetic modification. So we've been modifying organisms for hundreds of years now. The only difference is we can do it much faster and much cheaper using biotechnology. There's nothing inherent about the biotechnology that all of a sudden makes GMO food less safe than non-GMO food, right? There's nothing, there's nothing there. It's, it's like going back to the chemistry, right? So this is another one of those fear-mongering misnomers where there really isn't any truth to this and the science is very clear. But for some reason, the merchants of fear like to glom onto this and they like to, you know, keep on pushing this misinformation that uh, uh, GMOs are bad for you and that they're going to harm the earth. And that's, that's just just couldn't be any further from the truth. So anyway, um, that that's about it that I have to say on pesticides. And I guess I threw in some GMO stuff in there, too, because uh, uh, Michael asked about that in his question about um, about organics. But, you know, it's. It is interesting. We have a lot of testing. We have a lot of regulations devoted to pesticide safety. This is a huge area. And, you know, everyone wants to get it right. Industry wants to get it right. The the regulatory agencies, they all want to get it right. And at the end of the day, even if you're talking about organic, guess what? Organic pesticides, they still have to get registered. I'm just saying. Just saying. So on that note, thanks everybody for listening to yet another episode of the Critical Science Podcast. I appreciate you. Uh, and guess what? We just launched a new website for the podcast. It's critsipod.com. That is C-R-I-T, crit, S-C-I, pod, P-O-D, dot com. And uh, there, if you want to support, I'm not saying you have to, but if you want to support the uh, the podcast, um, you can ha- you can find information there under the Sport Critical Science uh, uh, link towards the top. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, we're still trying to grow the listener base. We got lots of listeners. We're all around the world. I've got people from uh, you know the Middle East. I got people from Africa. I think the only continent we don't have now is Antarctica. I wonder if we could change that. I don't know anybody in Antarctica, but maybe you do. And you can say, hey, on your next trip to Antarctica, can you uh, just use up a little of your bandwidth and listen to this podcast? I'm I'm sure it will, will brighten their day. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Have a great day.